Best friends Cordell Hubbard and Ruel Saylor were small-time dealers on the east side of Cleveland. On November 16, 2002, Cordell's sister Nicole was out partying with some friends. She fronted the group 20 bucks for drugs, but felt taken advantage of when she only got $10 back from the group of five. When she spoke up, a gun was pulled on her, so she called Cordell. While celebrating a birthday at a bar with a large group, including Will Sizemore and Ruel, Cordell answered the call from Nicole and took Sizemore along to confront the two men who had done her wrong, Omar Clark and Clark Lamar Williams. They pulled up on these men on a darkened street and Sizemore initially got out of the passenger side and confronted them about his sister, leading witnesses to believe that the passenger was Cordell. Cordell got out of the driver's side, Omar Clark pulled a gun, and Cordell shot him in self-defense, while the other man, Williams, got caught with a bullet in his buttocks as he ran away. Ruel was clearly not involved, but his tight friendship with Cordell and his days in the streets would come back to haunt him. A corrupt vice detective who had once vowed to get Ruel would use this opportunity, claiming an informant had told him that Ruel was the other man with Cordell while threatening and coercing Ruel's alibi witnesses into silence. Even with Cordell taking full responsibility and naming Will Sizemore as the other man before sentencing, Ruel still spent 15 years behind bars. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Smart journalism, fascinating topics, words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today.
Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me. I'm your host. And today, if I was going to title this episode, I would call it Web of Lies because this case was built on so many different layers of lies. So many different people had to tell in order to convict an innocent man named Ruel Saylor of murder and other charges. So we'll get right into it. First of all, I want to introduce the woman who was responsible for Ruel winning his freedom a couple years ago, Jennifer Passion Bergeron, who is the deputy director of the Ohio Innocence Project. So Jennifer, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. It's good to be here. I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to, to Kim Corral, too, because she was a private attorney that worked with me on this case. Thank you for doing that. And uh, without further ado, Ruel Saylor, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Uh, thank you for having me. And let's start in the beginning. So did you grow up in Cleveland? Yes, on the east side. The St. Clair area in the east side of Cleveland. Uh, my mother, as far as I can remember, she always was a nurse. Sometimes she worked two, three shifts a day. My father was, he was there, then he wasn't there. He was um, in the streets. But then I had to start, got older, I had to be there to help out with my siblings. I have a younger brother and sister. So once my dad wasn't there, it was just us. And then as a teenager, I took more into the streets than school because I felt like I had to help my mom with my siblings. So I began like to sell drugs at a young age and I dropped out of high school in like 10th grade. Tell us about Cordell Hubbard because he really is a central figure in this really crazy crime. Well, back history of Cordell Hubbard, me and Cordell Hubbard met in third grade. And for some reason, we ended up in the same class every grade throughout our whole entire school year up until high school. So we was always best friends. And Jennifer, this started from a drug deal gone bad, right? But a very minor drug deal at that. And this goes back to the night of November 16th of 2002. One of the people that we'll be talking about is Clark Lamar Williams, and we'll just refer to him as Williams, just to try to make it simpler. My understanding is Nicole Hubbard was with Omar Clark and Williams and a couple of her friends that night, and they were driving. Omar Clark and Williams to buy a wet cigarette, one cigarette with PCP. And I guess it was 20 bucks and Nicole fronted the 20 bucks. So when they stopped, I think it was Omar Clark that went in to get the money to pay her back, but didn't come back with 20 bucks, came back with only 10 bucks, apparently because everyone had taken turns smoking. So I guess he figured he only needed to pay half of it. I don't know. But in any case, this did not go over well with Nicole Hubbard. And my understanding is Omar pulled a gun on her, and that's when she called her brother, and things escalated from there. Me and Cordell Hubbard, we was happened to be out celebrating one of our friend's birthdays. We was at a bar, and Cordell had received a phone call from his sister, Nicole Hubbard. Him and William Sizemore left the bar that we was at and went to go confront these guys about his sister, to go see about her well-being, because he thought she was still there. And when he got there, she was gone. To my understanding, from what I was told, like Omar Clark pulled a gun on Cordell Hubbard twice, and Cordell Hubbard shot Omar Clark in self-defense. Omar Clark was shot 11 times, and Mr. Williams uh, was running away from the scene and was shot. Uh, he was lucky to be shot in the butt and, and therefore not badly hurt. And the two men drove off afterwards. And so the witnesses that was on the scene had confused the driver and the passenger. William Sizemore was the passenger. Cordell Hubbard was the driver. And William Sizemore got out and confronted the individuals saying, what y'all do to my sister? 
So the witnesses on that street automatically assumed that the brother was the passenger. And that's where the confusion came at. So they always had put Cordell on the passenger side and they didn't know who the driver was. So when they arrested Cordell for this crime, they was charging him as an accomplice because the driver was the shooter and they didn't have a second person. And going back to my history in the streets, there was a vice cop from my neighborhood that particularly didn't get along with me per se. And he had planted drugs on me once before and I didn't go to prison. And he felt that I should have went to prison. He told me that he would get me one day. And so when Cordell name came up in his crime, they automatically just assumed I was with Cordell because we've always been together for so many years and everyone knew that we was best friends. So this cop told the homicide detective that he had a confidential informant, which was never named, never brought up during our trial. Just his word, he had a confidential informant told him that I was the driver and that I was the shooter. And I was arrested based upon that. And, and then we fast forward, of course, to March 26, 2003, and a grand jury indicted you, Ruel, right, on charges of murder, kidnapping, and assault. But, I mean, the alibi is pretty strong in this case, right? I mean, he was miles and miles away across town with lots of other people, right? Yes, we have several affidavits from different people later on who could have potentially testified at the trial. But they also said in their affidavits that they were threatened by the police if they did show up to testify. Now, you, the case went to trial in May of 2003, and all three of you were tried together. First of all, it seems like a very quick turnaround. And I can't leave out the fact that when I see the words Cuyahoga County, I immediately get the chills. Because we keep hearing about cases from Cuyahoga County, wrongful conviction, one after the other. I was indicted March 26. I was arrested April 2nd. Cordell Hubbard was already indicted and was out on bond. And his court date prior to me being arrested, the state didn't have any witnesses to come to court. So the judge, Nancy McDonald, told Cordell and his lawyers and the prosecutors that she was going to reschedule the next court date. For May 19th, to my understanding, that they didn't come May 19th with witnesses that the case would be thrown out. In the midst of that, I was arrested and they added Cordell and Nicole to my new indictment, but kept they same court date. May 19th was their original court date to start a trial. Our lawyers filed a separate trial. They denied us a separate trial. And I had to literally prepare for a murder trial from April 2nd to May 19th. Jennifer, this all sounds pretty irregular, even amongst the crazy shit we hear week to week on this podcast. Well, I can't imagine as an attorney trying to get ready for a murder case in basically a month. So, I mean, that set the whole stage for things to just go downhill because there just wasn't time to do the type of investigation that would have been necessary to mount the proper defense. By the time I had put my witness list together, the detective on my case, before I could even make calls to get to these witnesses, he had already got to them. The bar that I was at, he got to the owner and he told her that if she came to court in my defense, he would he would get her bar raided, like raided for drugs and shut down. Like he would like plant drugs in her bar. And he's known for this throughout our neighborhood. So she didn't want to jeopardize her business, which I understand. And then my other witnesses, they was in the street life as well. And he went to them and threatened them with planting drugs on them and getting those guys' cases so they didn't come to court. So when it came time for trial, I didn't have any alibi witnesses that was on my list to come to court because 
This detective had went and spoke to all of them and threatened them not to come to court. So you didn't have a shot in hell when it really comes down to it. And I don't think the best lawyer in the world could have helped you out of that situation with what they were willing to do, the lengths they were willing to go to. So the trial, did you think after having seen all the worst of what our quote unquote justice system has to offer, did you think that you still had a chance to be acquitted? I was skeptical because my jury wasn't of my peers. Majority of my jury were older white people from suburban areas. And so the biggest thing in this case was identification. There was no physical evidence, no scientific evidence, no bullets, cases, none of that. The witnesses in this case described the two individuals as two light-skinned males that looked like brothers. Cordell Hubbard's the same skin complexion as Steph Curry. And you would put me as the same complexion as maybe LeBron James or Dwayne Wade, maybe. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, these human beings in this jury box has to understand that me and Cordell Hubbard can never look alike on no scene, no setting whatsoever. You're two different shades of color completely. But when you get a jury that's not from my culture or my background, they just see two African-Americans. So it was a different. I didn't I didn't know that, but I know now I'm just thinking everybody knows about light skin and dark skin. And that's just common sense. I wasn't aware that there are people that live in this world that don't know that. So the jury comes back in. What was that moment or those moments like for you? It was a moment of clarity because before you go through those things, you feel like nobody goes to jail that didn't do anything unless you know somebody that's actually innocent. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, they just found me guilty of something I didn't even see. Like I wasn't even nowhere near the scene of the crime, haven't been nowhere near that side of the town or anything. But to make it even worse that I'm being convicted of a crime that the man standing next to me actually committed. And here I am being found guilty of a crime I never saw. This episode is brought to you by Stand Together. Stand Together is a philanthropic community dedicated to helping people improve their lives. For more than 20 years, Stand Together and its partners have been on the front lines of criminal justice reform. By empowering people to take action, supporting nonprofits, and working with businesses, Stand Together tackles the root causes of problems in our communities and empowers those closest to the problems to drive solutions. Solutions like reducing unjust prison sentences through the First Step Act, empowering community-based programs that help people re-enter society, and now working to bridge divides in our communities. To learn how you may get involved, visit standtogether.org conviction. This episode is underwritten by the AIG Pro Bono Program. AIG is a leading global insurance company, and for over a decade, the AIG Pro Bono Program has provided thousands of hours of free legal services and other support to nonprofit organizations and individuals most in need. More recently, the program added criminal and social justice reform as a key pillar of its mission. It was an even heavier blow between me being convicted and me going to prison because Cordell Hubbard comes forward and he admits that he killed Omar Clark and he admits that William Sizemore was with him and that I was nowhere near that and that he played on my innocence to get free and now he wants to tell the truth. So when we get ready to go to sentencing, the plan is he's telling his attorney that 
when we go to sentencing, there were news cameras in there and media in there. So he was saying, like, I'm going to speak the truth in front of the, the cameras and blow this whole thing up. So I don't know if his lawyer played both sides or what, but we go to sentencing and our judge, she kicks the media out of the courtroom before court starts. Cordell still confesses to the crime and she still convicts me right there on the spot, sentenced me to 28 years to life. He's actually solving the case for them, right? He's identified, yes. which took some courage. I mean, it was too it was too late as it turns out, but it did take some courage. Hubbard signed a sworn statement, right? Claiming that Ruel was not with him at the crime scene. And he said it was, quote unquote, it was a guy named Will, and he meant by that Will Sizemore. And he goes on to say, I didn't think it was going to turn out like this. I didn't think my best friend would get convicted as the shooter, but he wasn't even there. So I had to file a new trial motion based on Cordell's affidavit admitting to this crime. We sent subpoenas to William Sizemore. So we have this retrial hearing where we present order to the courts. Cordell takes the stand at the retrial hearing, admits that he killed Omar Clark, describes the whole night in detail, how it happened, how he left, everything that happens. Before Cordell can make it back to his seat, she denies me a new trial, then sends me to prison. Jennifer, help us out here. What what was going on here that they were so actively disinterested in knowing what really happened? I don't have an answer for that. I don't know how you could hear that testimony and not try to fix this wrong. So, I mean, years go by and we're all the way to 2013 when you filed another petition asking for a new trial based on, on another sworn affidavit, right? Right. You want to walk us through that? Umar Clark, the victim's brother, Omar Clark's brother, he was heavily involved in the whole entire investigation. And that's how a lot of things worked out on the Cordell and Nicole Hubbard side, because Umar Clark would go talk to the witnesses. He would go talk to Williams. And he would go relay everything he found out in the streets to the police. And that's how they found out who Cordell and Nicole Hubbard even was. Fast forward, Umar Clark is in prison. So I write him a letter. And he writes me back. He tells me that days after trial, he knew the truth. William Sizemore had came forward to him and told him that he was with Cordell the night of the shooting and that Cordell killed his brother. He said, man, send a lawyer at me or send an investigator at me. I'll do an affidavit. So I'm thinking this was the mother load right here. So I get the affidavit. I file me a new trial motion again with this newly discovered evidence. The same judge, Nancy McDonald. I feel like it would be a more objective process if it was a different judge. But she denied the petition without a hearing. The petition dismissal was upheld on appeal in 2014. And then how did you end up contacting the Ohio Innocence Project? I had wrote to the Ohio Innocence Project. They never denied my case. They just, at the times that I wrote them, they responded saying they had a heavy caseload. So I understood that I'm going to keep fighting and keep building evidence as I go. So if they do come along, I'll have enough. And in the midst of that, I had retained attorney, amazing attorney, Kimberly Curl, my wife, Amy Saylor, my family. They was out here and they was beating down doors, having rallies. And then Kyle Swenson from The Scene magazine had did an article on me. And I had like a 10-page spread in the Ohio Interest Project. And then they had contacted me because they had seen the traction I had with my case. It was going, they looked into it. And Jennifer... And this student, Andrew and Ruby, they came to see me. I was in Ohio State Penitentiary and we went over my case. And I just I just knew right then and there, like I was about to go home. So 
Jennifer, how did you crack this case? There was really nothing to crack. I mean, by the time we got the case, we knew exactly what had happened because everybody had already explained that. Cordell admitted he was the shooter. We knew William Sizemore had admitted he was the second person there. And so there really wasn't anything to solve. We knew from the get-go that Ruel wasn't there and had nothing to do with it. The challenge was to convince the prosecutor in the court to let him out of prison since he was innocent. And that's what took a long time. So in the spring of 2016, I think his other attorney, Kim, we started working cooperatively together to try to figure out a plan to get Ruel out. And then we were kind of working with additional investigation to try to find anything else we could. And that's where we got additional affidavits from some of the alibi witnesses and from Nicole Hubbard. And because he'd already filed, as we were talking about before, these new trial motions that had been denied, it looked like the best path for him was to try the conviction integrity unit that had opened in Cuyahoga County. My whole time in prison, every attorney, every investigator, everybody always told me, like, if William Sizemore was to ever come forward and tell the truth, that's your golden key, you walking out of prison. So I'm in Lucasville, and, I'm, and I get a phone call, and Kim is crying as soon as I call. I'm like, why, are you, why, why, why is she crying? And she's like, William Sizemore just went to the prosecutor's office and told the truth. So in my mind, they about to come pop my door the next five minutes, and I'm about to walk out of here. It didn't happen like that, though. Like I still sat in prison for like almost eight, nine months after William Sizemore came forward and told the truth. And the prosecutors from the CIU, Russell Ty, him and Kim came to see me. And he's like, well, we got to do some more investigating. And at this point, William Sizemore has admitted that he was with Cordell Hubbard and that Cordell Hubbard shot Omar Clark in self-defense and said that Omar Clark had a gun. Williams had came forward and recanted and said he never saw me a day in his life and that they made him say that I was the shooter. My witnesses, Bobby Nettles, Anthony McKenzie, they've came forward and told the truth that they was threatened. Cordell has admitted. So I have all this evidence mounting with me saying that I'm innocent. And the prosecutor told me that he had to go do more investigation and was going to leave me in prison. So I had to ask, well, where's William Sizemore? And he told me William Sizemore was at home because he didn't see him as a suspect. The system is not built right at all. Was there a worst moment in that 15 years in that very, very dark place where you almost gave up or where it's just a moment of, of absolute despair? And, and at the same time, what was the happiest moment? Well, the happiest moment would be when I, they told me I was going home. But just a quick how it went from dark to light. I was in Lucasville and it's like the worst prison in Ohio, hands down. And I was I was on a straight path. I was staying out of trouble and I was trying to get my status dropped so I could go to a lower level prison. And right before I went up for to get up my status drop for a lower level prison, I was a porter and a dustpan had came up missing. Now a dustpan in any other prison or any other times is a minor a minor thing. They don't make a big deal about it or nothing. But this particular time, they made the biggest deal about this dustpan. And they tried to give me like an LC, which is like 60 days in the hole and segregation. And they tried to take my my status being lured away from me and all these things and my, my phone privileges and my visit privileges. And it was like, it just came out of nowhere. And it was like, I didn't even do nothing. It was like, this is the story of my life. 
And so they put me in the hole and they weren't trying to hear me out. They weren't trying to watch the camera to see. They have these high tech cameras and I just keep saying, watch the camera. It's, it's just something simple. Watch the camera. And you will see I didn't touch the dustpan. They refused to watch the camera. So it was like, this is a setup or something. And I got to the hole. I just went on a hunger strike because I had to fight for my, my, my way without being violent or being rude or anything like that. So I just refused to eat. Me refusing to eat, being the person I was in prison, I was I had a little bit of amount of respect. A lot of other guys follow suit. And they, they refused their trades on account of what they was doing to me because everybody knew they never did this about the dustpan. So long story short, I went up doing like seven, eight, I think like 10 days on hunger strike in solitary confinement. Not a soul around me. I'm by myself. And it's like, I'm just feeling like this damn near eat. I'm feeling like I'm about to die in the cell. I ain't ate. I'm, I'm not feeling good. And they come get me. So I had a lawyer phone call and I came, got the phone. It was Jennifer Kim. And the Channel 5 News from my city, Joe Paganagas, all on three-way on the phone with me. And I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? And they was like, that's it. Like, you coming home. You be out a couple of days. It went from, like, the worst time in prison to the best time in prison, all in one cycle. From the literal depths of despair, starving, alone, in solitary confinement for another crime you didn't commit. And then they finally decided to watch the camera and another porter had threw the dustpan in the trash by mistake. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh, <laughs> I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. All oh, my friends love it. I love that it's kid-safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. 
Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Ultimately, you obviously were freed. And when I say freed, I chose that word carefully because even after all of this, they still weren't done messing with you, right? Because what I'm referring to is in March 2018, the prosecutor, Andrew Wells' team, filed a joint motion vacating conviction, all the convictions, and dismissing all the charges. But there was another little dirty trick, right? Which is that the prosecution had a caveat, and they said to you, well, that you had to plead guilty to perjury and obstruction of justice, saying that you had falsely testified at trial that Cordell was not involved in the shooting. And in exchange for this, they were willing to resentence you to 10 years, which obviously you had already served a lot longer than that, and you could go home. I never disclosed that Cordell and William Sizemore left the bar and I stayed. I never really lied. Just, we was together all that night which I didn't find out he left the board to after the fact. And so they told me that I lied on the stand. I committed perjury. Perjury and obstruction of justice, they gave me five years max on each one equal to 10 years. And at this point, they hold it in front of me like, well, you can go home right now. If you agree to this, you can go home. If you don't agree to this, ain't no telling how long it might take for us to get you a new trial started. It might take a year. It might take two years. Who knows? But you can go home right now if you say you take these 10 years time served. So I agreed to it, even though I know it wasn't right. I agreed to it because I wanted to go home. Who don't want to go home after being in jail for 15 years for a crime he didn't commit? It's an unreal story. And of course, now fast forward to March of 2020, you filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the Cleveland Police Department and nine officers seeking damages for your wrongful conviction. And your team also filed a separate complaint in the Cuyahoga Court of Common Pleas to have you declared wrongfully imprisoned and therefore eligible for state compensation or actually innocent, however you want to look at it. So we don't need to get into that now, but I just want to say that all of us in the family, the wrongful conviction family and the innocence community are all rooting for you. I can't let this platform go without sharing where I'm at currently. Since being released, I married my wife on my one year anniversary, March 28th. As of recently, I just had a daughter, Mayel Sailor. She was born on the 12th of October, I started a business when I came home from prison. I sell a clothing line called Comma Club Clothing. The comma means continuation. The mantra is my story is not over. No one's story is ever over. As long as you get up and continue to fight for what you want in life, your story is never over. I've done speaking engagements. I go to high schools, colleges, and tell my story. And you can find me on Instagram at comma underscore club underscore clothing. Thank you. That's comma underscore club underscore clothing. Follow Ruel. The clothes are great. I've seen them and they're comfortable too. So I'm giving up. I'm giving my plug. So now this is the part of the podcast, which is my favorite part. I always say that because this is the part where I get to, first of all, I thank both of you for coming and taking your time and sharing your story and just for being freedom fighters that you are. And so Jennifer Passion Bergeron, thank you again for being on the show today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. 
And Ruel, you know, once again, you're a hero to, to me and so many others. And I'm just so thrilled that we got to talk today. And, um, you know, we're going to be friends for a long time. So thanks again for sharing your, your strength and your spirit with the audience. Oh, thank you for having me on. 100%. So now what happens is I turn my microphone off, kick back, close my eyes, and just listen to closing arguments. Jennifer, you first, please. And then you can just hand it off to Ruel. I just want to say thank you to everyone for listening and being interested in these issues because they are pervasive throughout the country and they need to be heard. The stories and the exonerees and just the awareness in general. And if you get the chance to work on a jury, please do so and just be skeptical and and look for the truth. Jennifer, I love you. Thank you for all you've done. And I can't leave this podcast without giving my wife, Amy Saylor, her roses, as well as Kim Carell and Tom Pavish, Andrew and Ruby and Mark at the OIP. I wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation if it wasn't for these people because they fought for me on the outside. Like Kim Carell was my attorney. She did 10 times more than what I paid her for. Believe that. And she's been a friend from there on out. And the OIP has become a family. They don't just get you out of prison, but they stick with you the whole time while you're out. I just want to just give all of them their flowers now. I, I, I get a joy out of just sharing my story. It's about the awareness of what's going on in our world, our country, as far as our legal system and how our courts, police officers, things of that nature, the juries handle themselves. Because I was once that person that didn't believe these things happen. So the more we share stories like mine and others, we wake up more people to know that these things actually happen. If you know someone in prison, please contact them. Please become engaged in their cases. Just, just be there for those guys that are in prison. There are a lot more guys in prison that are innocent. I say that over and over again. There are so many more. I'm just, I'm just one of many that happen to make it out, but there's so many more in there. So I encourage people to be on the jury, listen, be attentive, study these cases that you in the jury, and just help people that you know that are incarcerated. Write them, send them a letter, give them a phone call, anything like that, because it means a lot. It means a lot more than you may think. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Please support your local Innocence Projects and go to the link in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. The music on the show, as always, is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? 
backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.